This is an ABC podcast. You know, it's come to my attention that there have been rumours about the way this show is put together and that some of the editorial decisions made are the result of inducements and kickbacks in the direction of one <laughs> Scott Stevens. Um, I'm here to say that I know nothing of those rumours. They, they were news to me um, and that I have total confidence in Scott Stevens and I believe that um, he hasn't come anywhere near anything that would amount to a breach of the law and for that reason he remains my co-host on The Minefield. Uh, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my now exonerated co-host wow. um, as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Sorry if that was all news to you, Scott, but I thought it was best to just hit that on the head before we got going. Yes, yes. Well, it's very good to try to clear my name before we go any further into the conversation. Credibility, yep. after all, is the only thing that one can successfully bear, I think, into public spaces these days. So I'm I'm glad to have that endorsement. Yep. I'm glad that the cloud is somehow lifted and I'll spend the rest of my career in this position trying to regain our listeners' trust. Does that sound about right? <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, okay. Right. I think we have, um, in a meta way, done the show. We can probably <laughs> sign off now, can't we? It's, it's true. Uh, can I just say, I love the fact that we're not discussing COVID-19. I love the fact that we're not discussing on this show US politics or any of the other huge seismic shocks that have defined and I think will forever define 2020. I have a feeling we will be discussing those things nonetheless. Yeah, I actually do kind of as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, as soon as I said it, I realized, oh, damn. Anyway, um, along with these big, let's call them the big four seismic shocks that have, I'm not going to, you're going to have to wait for our last show of the year to learn what we think those big four seismic shocks are. How's that for a well done. teaser? Yeah. Uh, we're dealing with the little tremors that have accompanied us this year. The little tremors that have been a little bit more like a drumbeat month on, month off. Uh, little disclosures, little reports of, let's call it straight up, political corruption at both state and federal levels. These have been little reports that have accompanied us throughout the year. I think they've bothered a great many people. They've certainly attracted a considerable amount of media attention and reporting. I think there's been some truly excellent reporting surrounding some of these things. Uh, around some of it, there's been maybe less the public response that many people who care about this sort of thing would expect. But these little stories, or maybe not so little stories, that we've come to accept, it seems almost, as being, if not politics as usual, then not all that unusual. Stories of inflated land deals and outright bribery, stories of cronyism, conflicts of interest, and gross maladministration. Um, what I think is kind of interesting, though, Willie, and I'm really curious to hear what you make of this, on the back of these various stories of, let's call them high and low-level corruption, kind of quotidian every day, right through to the kind of thing that probably should lead to a resignation here or there. We've seen two reports come out over the course of the last six weeks that give us two very different pictures of the way that many Australians feel about state and federal government. So the YouGov Cambridge Globalism Project released a survey about four weeks ago now. They sampled uh, just over 1,000 Australian voters. And of those sampled, 73% said they trusted both levels of government to provide accurate inf information about COVID-19. That's not bad, 73%. That's actually pretty good compared to other 
government. 79% said they believe the state and federal governments had handled the COVID-19 pandemic well. Again, that's pretty impressive. 65% say they felt a high degree of trust in Prime Minister Scott Morrison. That's, again, I think pretty interesting. Um, Recently, a little bit more recently, but covering more or less the same period, Griffith University and Transparency International Australia released another study uh, specifically about political corruption. That study found that 66% of Australians consider political corruption to be a major problem. That's up from 61% in 2018. Just shy of 20% believe that the federal government is handling the problem of corruption badly. Uh, And 17% said that they trusted the federal government to – um, they, they, they trusted the federal government a great deal, 17%, but that's up from just above 6% three years ago. So it seems to me, Willie, that we've got two strange pictures emerging. One is very high levels of public confidence in the way that state and federal governments have handed the COVID-19 pandemic, but very low levels of trust in government to be non-corrupt, let's say, Uh, to resist opportunities for corruption and to deal with the problem of corruption within state and federal government ranks. I don't see how these two things can totally go together. How can you have high levels of trust in a government to be competent in face of a pandemic but have very low levels of trust in state and federal governments not to be corrupt in their dealings? You want my answer? Yeah, I do. I don't think the corruption figures are right. So that's that. <laughs> How about that? Okay. In other words, do you think these surveys suggest that people care more about corruption than they actually do? Yeah, I think they capture nothing. How In the same that? way that, um, you know, do you want to pay more tax? No. Do you want better services? Yes. I, th- I think yep. there's a... I think there's a fashionability to complaining about corruption. Not complaining, sorry. There's an affash- a fashionability to regarding politicians as corrupt. Okay. I think that's right. Even if you haven't paid attention and even if you don't really have any well-formed views on any particular instances of said corruption. Mm. I'm not saying, by the way, it's not a problem. I think it is. Yep. Um. I've Would been, you also be prepared to say, Waleed, that perceptions of corruption at the level of state and federal politics is maybe inflated, that people think that there is more corruption than there in fact is? I don't have a view on that. Okay. I feel like I could be persuaded either way on that question, mm-hmm. partly because how would I know how much there really is? <laughs> mm. I guess that's the nature of a lot of what we co- I mean, we haven't defined corruption here, by the way. Yeah, so this is, right. this is also one of the inherent problems, I think, with any polling on a question of corruption like this, is that, it, I mean, do you regard any kind of question mark that arises around um, government conduct that might, for example, be in the interest of a political donor? Is that corruption? Or is it only corruption when there are brown paper bags involved, stuffed with money? Mm-hmm. Um, and people, you know, breaking into the Reserve Bank of Australia and stealing money or something. Like, mm. what, what, what's your threshold for declaring something corruption? So I think these things are all very watery. But 
66%. So do, do we mean do we mean corruption that takes place in the dark, the kind of secrecy or even the Watergate level corruption, let's say, versus corruption that seems to be accepted as part of the everyday business of politicians working with lobbyists in order to get certain things done? Well, if you're working with a lobbyist, do you call that corruption at all? Like, I think there's a real question there. Mm. So I think if you asked the 66% who think that political corruption is a major problem to tell you what corruption was, I think you'd get so many different answers to that, even if they could figure out a way to articulate it, because it's a very hard thing to articulate, I think. But I think it's so many different answers to that, that you would end up realizing that that 66% doesn't mean anything. This Mm. is not 66% of people agreeing on a particular thing, I don't think. Yep. Or at least, yeah, I I suspect that that's the case. Um, Do 66% of Australians consider political corruption to be a major problem? Because if so, they never express it at an election. Never. Mm. Now, maybe the only way through that is to say they consider uh, political corruption to be such a major problem that it taints everyone and so there is no choice on the issue at an election. Maybe you could argue that. But I actually don't think that's plausibly true, particularly where you've got governments who've been in power long term, because inevitably they will have accrued more instances of corruption than the opposition. I think that's right anyway. Hmm. It's not to say the opposition are not corrupt or incorruptible or are incorruptible, but just that corruption tends to attach to those who have power and wield it and they tend to be disproportionately people who are in government. And so if you've got a party that's been in government for 15 years or something like that, it's, you're far more likely to have instances of corruption attach themselves to you. So why, why don't we vote against that? The only, the only time I can really think of corruption as an idea swallowing a government or a party was the Labor Party in New South Wales. It's the only yeah, time I could really think of it. But we have... This sort of steady drumbeat of people saying they want a federal ICAC and a coalition government in Canberra that steadily refuses to implement one that is meaningful, that has teeth, that will investigate politicians, that in other words will do the kind of thing that ICAC in New South Wales has done. Um, And you have voters repeatedly saying they want that, but they don't care enough to express that by voting. So bottom line is it's not that important. So if, if we're going to mm. say, or at least voters don't deem it that important, it's not as important as things like what we, who we believe will handle the economy best or that, I mean, that's probably the major thing, isn't it? Or we'll administer a public health crisis best. Yes, although we haven't voted on that. No, we haven't. But I think there is this sense that these are things that really do matter and bad politicians will cost lives and livelihoods, whereas we seem not to believe that political corruption is a sufficient blight or sufficient malignancy within the body politic that it does real damage to the quality of our shared life. And maybe the voters are right on that. Yes, maybe they are. Can Can I just propose two things, though? Yeah. I think one of the things that we are leaving out of this is the idea that uh, voting in or disregarding at the ballot box allegations or accusations or even proofs that a politician is corrupt, this is something that goes back at least 50 years. I mean the very fact, for instance, that Richard Nixon won re-election in 1974 with the full weight of the Watergate investigations hanging over his head and the fact that Bill Clinton – 
won re-election in 1996, again, with significant allegations and in some cases even proof of corruption of deceit hanging over his head uh, and other things uh, simply not yet proven. Let's just put it that way. I think – and the fact that that selection of quote-unquote corrupt politicians is a bipartisan affair. In other words, yes, they may well be corrupt, but what's a bit of corruption between ideological friends? Or we're willing to excuse this because these presidential candidates or these presidents give us other things that they want. I think there's something there that we simply regard corruption as being a second-order political or moral concern. That that I think is one – issue that continues to trickle down. I think we've also seen this play out, by the way, in the most recent U.S. presidential election. See, we couldn't ignore it altogether. Uh, the, the, other, the other thing that I would point out, though, Waleed, is while this is something that goes back for 50 years, I think we are now reaping the consequences of at least a five-decade-long experiment of what the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin has called the experiment of having democracy without trust or having politics without trust. We no longer seem to believe that having trust in elected officials is indispensable, is necessary uh, for the proper and healthy functioning of representative democracy. And so because of that, we've erected these various things to try to place, if you like, safeguards against the most egregious forms of corruption, but certainly the forms of, of political morality that are most that are most closely associated with democratic politics namely truthfulness and integrity those are the two things that we simply no longer expect from our politicians we no longer see those things as being indispensable but for does the that reveal function. a kind of institutional trust so we have trust in the institutions ultimately to sort that out we don't need to have trust in the individual players so we get that a game's being played but we believe that in the end it sort of comes out in the wash okay I think we've delegated a degree of the virtue that we ought to expect from our politicians to external bodies. And I'm not saying we don't need external bodies. I think we do. I think Jeremy Bentham is right. I think institutions cannot properly investigate themselves. I think that's absolutely right. But I think as soon as you have this delegation of a form of political virtue that is inherent to the political vocation itself, and I do, I mean, I I don't want to take an expansive idea of the proper morality that ought to attend to politics. I think that truthfulness or at least forthrightness, and I think integrity, uh, being able to trust a politician to behave in the public interest whether that politician is under active scrutiny or not. Um, I think those are the things that we ought at a very base level to be able to expect from our representatives. As soon as you delegate that inherent morality to other external or procedural bodies, I do think you are sacrificing something in the transfer. Maybe, but there clearly is a threshold that still remains in place, right? If we had anything like the one MDB scandal that Najib yeah. Razak in Malaysia uh, got caught up in, this is a multi-billion-dollar scandal for personal enrichment. I think we would draw the line, right? So I think, in other words, I think a line is being drawn between corruption that enriches the politician personally, and corruption that maybe takes the focus of the interest away from the people towards some kind of sectional interest and the return being one's political security or the securing of political donations or that sort of thing. I think the latter we regard as just the ordinary, if unfortunate, um, engine of politics hmm. and the former we regard as somehow outside the pale. But Have you ever read uh, Robert Penn Warren's book, All the King's Men? No. 
it's it's the great proto-populist political novel. Willie Stark, who's based on I, I grew up in Louisiana, and Louisiana is famous for its corrupt politicians. I actually, I remember as a young boy seeing signs along the side of the road. Uh, asking Louisiana state voters to, quote unquote, vote for the crook when the two gubernatorial candidates on offer, one was a notorious white supremacist and former KKK member, and the other was a convicted convicted felon. Um, So corruption is just part of the soil, if you like, in Louisiana state politics. Uh, But in Robert Penn Warren's great novel, uh, All the the King's Men, there's at one point where this populist governor, Willie Stark, says, you have to make goodness out of badness because goodness was never made out of anything else. And I kind of think that maybe that's to some extent the resting pulse that we've arrived at. The egregious forms, yes, we don't like them and we're willing to to, to have action taken, but just the kind of everyday, well, not the best ends, not the best means to those ends, but at least the, the ends themselves are worthwhile. Yeah, and I think this is a problem because I don't think there are boundaries between these things. I think this I is very right. slippery. Yeah, and I think you could corrode political culture to a point where the big forms become inevitable. Mm-hmm. But enough on that from me. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now, but you can also catch us on the ABC Listen app anytime you like or subscribe to our podcast where we keep going beyond the end of the radio show because we find that we still have more to say. Uh, If you'd like to do that, just subscribe wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Scott, I think this might be our last guest for the year. It is. It is. Not our last show for the year, we should be clear. Not the last show. No, no, but it is, in fact, our last guest. Bruce Buchan is Associate Professor of History in the School of Humanities, Languages, and Social Sciences at Griffith University. He's also the author, along with a former guest on this show, Lisa Hill, of An Intellectual History of Political Corruption, which makes Bruce just about the perfect person (laughs) to have on a show where we're trying to work out what the hell corruption is. Bruce, welcome to The Minefield. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you, Waleed. So so let's begin with the question that Waleed posed or the issue that he raised, which we kind of groped along the edges of, but I'm not sure we got entirely right. How should we define corruption? How should we think about corruption? That is an incredibly difficult question to answer. Uh, The um, narrative that uh, my great colleague at the University of Adelaide, Lisa Hill, and I tried to articulate in our book was that the history of corruption indicates Um, an incredible conceptual slipperiness inherent in the term Uh, and that um, the longer you or the further back you look in history, the the more you see those, uh, the contours of corruption being drawn in an incredibly diffuse series of ways to capture a a wide range of behaviours. And um, our argument was that in comparatively recent times, corruption tends to narrow Uh, and focus on those kinds of archetypical behaviours, bribery, kickbacks, focused very much on the performance of public office, public officials who are given a a certain trust to perform their duties in in accordance with accepted standards of uh, integrity and accountability and truthfulness, as you said. Uh, But the term has also captured much more expansive moralistic and even spiritual connotations of decline, decay, degeneration, which can be uh, associated with individuals, with whole groups, with nations and with empires, Mm. such that if that rather narrow notion of corruption, self-seeking in public office, for example, is allowed to fester and infect others and to spread widely, then the fate of an entire nation or an empire might rest upon 
the commitment, the, the moral commitment to expunging that corruption from society. So that if self-seeking or, as Machiavelli might have said, laziness or indolence becomes uh, characteristic of a society, that's when corruption is likely to pose its greatest threat mm. uh, to the well-being of an entire collective. Waleed? Well, I really thought you would take oh, it. <laughs> I'm so happy to. I'm so happy to. So, so my, my question, though, Bruce, I mean, this is, this is very interesting to me, sort of thinking about corruption as existing along that kind of spectrum. I guess my, my immediate question, though, is one, we're thinking almost in terms of procedural corruption, uh, a, a flaunting or a disregard of norms, let's put it that way. Mm. And other, the other is really very much a notion of corruption. You just described it as almost a form of moralistic yeah. uh, 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 censure, some kind of moral breach. Is there, in the history of the thinking of corruption, is there a necessary connection between those two? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly has been drawn at, at a number of different times, um, such that um, corruption identified with particular uh, misdoings in public office are seen as characteristic of something much more profound and underlying in that society, an acceptance that this is just the way of public office or this is just the way of power and privilege and I think this is really the concern that prompted the essay that I wrote for the website for this program, mm. um, that there is something, I think, in the Australian attitude toward corruption that I would characterise not so much a, as an acceptance of corruption but a kind of cynical reflex that says all politicians are that way. That and 66% of people saying it's a major yeah. problem in Australian politics. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that um, it's been a long time since I've studied political science. Uh, but when I did, you know, we spent a, an inordinate amount of time on learning the values that are supposed to uphold a democratic society, a healthy democratic society, commitment to justice and equality, one vote, one value, all of those kinds of things. But I think that just as integral to the maintenance of Australian democracy is that cynical reflex, that um, that attitude that corruption will always be with us, that all sides of politics are as bad as one another, and therefore the charge of corruption is therefore blunted. Mm. Mm. It, it doesn't have any incisive value because there is no guarantee that if you vote for the other side, they're going to be any better. Um, and so you get this uh, this discourse about corruption that kind of leads nowhere because all it seems to elicit at the ballot box, as you and Walid were saying before, is a kind of national shrug. Right, but this and is I also this cynicism is also something that serves Australia well, I think, because you don't get politicians that have people in their thrall uh, in the way, for example, we've seen in the United States, whereby there is simply no barrier that cannot be broken. Um, as a result, you, don't, you, you cannot have a cultish um, political party, political leader, political anything, compulsory voting being a major part of that as well, but just it can't happen. So I, I wouldn't want to throw out the cynicism entirely. I mean, there is something kind of nice about the fact that what we do not have here is the chest-thumping moralistic language that we're going to get to Washington, we're going to drain the swamp, we're going to throw out all the corrupt politicians. Yeah. And then get there and then practice really quite an egregious form. Part of that's of structural overt. though, right? Because you you are part of the swamp necessarily if you become the prime minister because yeah, of the Westminster system. 
Yeah, but it, but it's also the fact that corruption and populism are have long been very, very, very closely connected. It's not so much that populists hate corruption. It's the kind of acceptance that this is part of the game. It just matters, is the corruption on our side and for our people yeah. or not? I would be the last person to endorse that kind of draining the swamp um, discourse. Um, but I think that the consequence of the cynicism, and I accept that you know there are positive aspects to it in the way in which Australian political history has developed, um, the consequence is that we accept that there is a genuine lack of accountability for misdeeds in public office. To and that point. seems to be a really significant problem just at the moment. Yeah. yeah, I think that's fair. And I think there are far fewer resignations than there used to be, which says that if that cynicism is a long-range thing in Australian politics, at one point did not preclude resignations. I want to talk a little bit about the Barry O'Farrell case in the podcast, because I mm. think that's a really interesting inflection point. Someone who probably did the least of all and ended up resigning, which is fascinating. Anyway, uh, we're done for the radio part of the show. Bruce Buchan is our guest, Associate Professor of History in the School of Humanities, Languages and Social Sciences at Griffith University. Uh, He will hang around for the podcast. I hope you do too. And if not, we'll see you next week on the radio. Thank you, Bruce and Willie. This is is wonderful. This is exactly the kind of conversation I was hoping we were going to. Because I think we've we've done what we wanted to do. We've discussed it. Pretty substantively, but I think there are a few other little things that are going to be important to put in place. I should say for our listeners, uh, Bruce has written a fabulous piece for ABC Religion Ethics. If you just go to abc.net.au forward slash religion, you'll see a piece by uh, Bruce called The Exception or the Rule When Corruption Becomes Commonplace. It really is well worth reading. Um, Can we, Waleed and Bruce, can we just put, establish one other piece, I think, of the moral architecture or, uh, or framing of this discussion, which I think we have maybe gestured towards but haven't really touched on. Um, Immanuel Kant was one of the most interesting, I think, theorists of the dangers of political corruption because he had this very strong sense that politicians represent two groups of people at exactly the same time. Obviously, they represent their constituents. And so probity, integrity, truthfulness, public spiritedness, public service, these are all very important things. But he also saw that politicians represent other politicians that being a politician is representative in that double sense. So that when one breaks one's trust with one's constituents, that obviously is one kind of moral evil. But to cause other people to see all politicians as being corrupt by one's own dalliances with forms of corruption, that also can't said is a form of evil. Now, I should say that he also warned against ever saying those kind of blanket categorical statements. All politicians are corrupt. All of them are sort of in it. Uh, he was very, he was quite circumspect, I think rightly so about that. But what do we make of this idea that it's not just, it's not just, if I can put it this way, horizontal corruption between, you know, a, or sorry, it should be vertical corruption mm-hmm. between a representative politician and his constituents. But this idea that politicians are representative of other politicians, therefore there is an additional moral seriousness, a moral weight for them to be truthful, to display integrity and so on? Well, um, I suppose the uh, obligation to to fulfil your public office that you've been elected to uh, in such a way that it does not bring public office in general into disrepute should be a significant motivation, you would hope. Um, But there have been times in the past when corruption has just become 
the fabric of political discourse. And I'm thinking here, for example, of the early 18th century in Britain when Whigs and Tories and all kinds of different coalitions formed government. And there was this constant pattern of out of office using the language of corruption to taint the other side, and then once in office using every means of corruption possible to maintain one's power. It was simply the language of politics. And and corruption uh, was a regular charge employed by all sides whenever out of office in order to get back into office, in order to get their hands on the levers of corruption. So um, there is a degree to which uh, corruption could be seen as simply a mechanism for a power, um, that uh, there is an understanding that um, the charge of corruption becomes a kind of rhetorical device rather than a serious charge that necessarily is supposed to motivate uh, popular disapproval. Um, It is uh, simply a posture. Um, The charge of corruption becomes a posture that one makes in order to uh, play the part of an opposition. But, Willie, does that mean then one side of politics accusing the other side of politics of being corrupt is potentially playing a very, very dangerous game, not so much because all politics is inherently corrupt, which I don't think any of the three of us would want to say, but because using corruption as a political weapon to discredit the other side is by its very nature one of the ways in which you're inducing the public to lose faith within politics as a whole. Is that going too far, Willie? Yeah, there was a former American ambassador to Australia who liked to um, observe that fast food restaurants never attack each other. (laughs) I don't don't know if that's actually true anymore, given some recent fast food ads I've seen, but they never attack each other because what they didn't want to do was devalue fast food. They didn't want people Mm. to go off burgers. I'm I'm not sure if I like this equation. Why not? Well, no. I, I, I mean, think I think nice. it's a perfect equation because in politics, yeah. what ends up happening is that they're constantly attacking each other on all kinds of grounds, which end up devaluing the whole enterprise. Yeah. That was his observation. And I think it's a good one, right? Now, I'm not saying all the, all commercial considerations um, and modes of argument and persuasion should be imported into politics necessarily. But it, it speaks to the point that you're making, that when you particularly when you promiscuously use certain charges, certain allegations against each other, um, you do run the risk that that just becomes part of the political vernacular in, you know, a a kind of um, just routine way that devalues its meaning or or makes it devoid of meaning in the end. Mm. But isn't that the reason that we end up seeking flight in independent bodies? So you get ICAC in New South Wales and you get... I back in Victoria, which is, I think, a much watered-down version of ICAC. That's kind of the solution to that conundrum. If you can create a third party that is outside the partisan fray, then all of those sort of partisan attacks on the grounds of corruption become less meaningful and less and until they end up being upheld by this kind of independent body. And then you might really suffer. The problem I think that we've found in New South Wales is that ICAC has been so muscular and found so many breaches so quickly that it's ended up either confirming that there is a very serious corruption problem or it's ended up policing too much Hmm. and so devaluing the idea of corruption in that sense. And that's why I think the Barry O'Farrell case was interesting. Now, Barry O'Farrell comes off the back of the Eddie Obeid saga, which, like, that's oh, that's the high watermark, really, in mm. contemporary Australian politics of of corruption. 
Barry O'Farrell's case, he clearly sees the need to resign immediately because he receives a bottle of wine and a thank you note from some people who are connected to that whole, you know, obedient episode um, and clearly feels so tainted by that that he finds his position untenable. In a weird way, it's his integrity that makes that possible, right? mm. that he would actually mm. do that. But the end result is that it does flatten the whole enterprise. Wow, if even he's in it, then everybody must be. Um, and so I find myself wrestling with this. Would the status of political corruption in Australia have been better off if Barry O'Farrell stood his ground? <laughs> if, he, if he didn't do what he perceived to be the right thing in that moment. Um, but surely it's not just um, a matter of his own moral calculation that, that led him to resign, but um, that the resignation was in part a reflection of the expectations that were held of public office at that moment. But and I don't I know that that's that true, actually. I, I think it caught people by surprise that he was prepared to resign over that. Now, look, this was six years ago, so my memory might be failing me. Tell me if I'm wrong about that, Bruce. But, but my memory of it was that he what? He resigned. Wow, that was quick. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. I'm not an expert on, on that particular case. But um, I think that they're the one of the problems that we're grappling with in Australia at the moment is this question of accountability. And I don't think it's a uniquely Australian problem. I think it is a problem that's manifesting in different forms in a lot of democracies around the world, particularly the English-speaking ones, um, where it seems that there is a kind of impunity that seems to be developing, that um, maladministration, whether it's corruption or just um, incompetence in office, doesn't seem to have a consequence in the public sphere. There seems to be simply, uh, if I can refer back to the earlier point I made about a national shrug of the shoulders toward uh, corruption in public office, there seems to be a responsive shrug of the shoulder toward those in public office when the incidences of, of malpractice have been exposed. And I think that this is a really significant problem because corruption should matter not simply in terms of the calculation that politicians are making to, uh, to perform their public office in a, in a respectful way, in a way that doesn't bring public office generally into disrepute or political office. It should matter to the citizenry who, um, you know, should be concerned for the vibrancy of uh, our systems of accountability. And I think in that respect that the anti-corruption measures, the, the various proposals that are made to, to bolster integrity through external bodies are very serious proposals that should be, you know, engaged with very seriously. But I think that it should be accompanied by uh, an awareness that the health of democracy, the vibrancy of democracy depends on the general public being concerned for corruption and accountability okay. and integrity in office. Sure. All right. So that sounds right as far as it goes, but can we grind this out a bit with your permission? Mm. So clearly, like the, the last scalp I can recall over, what would you want to call it? Some kind of maladministration or even just failure was probably the resignation of Jenny McCarkos in Victoria, the health mm. minister. Uh, it's not a corruption allegation, but it's a you failed too badly, right? And this comes about um, she resigns. It seems from a distance that it was probably forced um, either directly or indirectly by the Premier Daniel Andrews um, giving evidence at an inquiry into the hotel quarantine that 
was so damning that she couldn't survive it. Okay. You could read that as Daniel Andrews preserving himself. You could read that as being for the overall good of the government. Contra the situation at the federal level where in Scott Morrison's government, it seems there is no resigning offence. Nobody seems to be resigning over anything, no matter what the entanglement seems to be, no matter how much robo-debt can happen and nothing no, no accountability, all that sort of thing. The Berejiklian government, um, and as, as Gladys Berejiklian has sort of moved from one minor scandal to another, her popularity remains extremely strong. Scott Morrison's popularity remains extremely strong. I, I pull all this together and the image that I get is of a voting block, of a, um, an electorate that cares far more for competence and outcomes than for abstracted notions of integrity and corruption. Uh, Here's the question. What exactly is wrong with that? If the outcomes are in the end satisfactory to the electorate and the polling data and the increased support for our levels of government and increased trust in government, particularly in the aftermath of COVID-19 or during COVID-19, tells us that we are satisfied with those outcomes, then clearly whatever it is that is corruption that we are trying to identify here is not compromising those outcomes. There's the odd thing. We pay um, a bit too much for or a lot too much for a piece of land here or there. But the overall outcomes deliver more or less what we are entitled to and what what we consider to be enough um, from our political system. And if we're being pragmatic and outcome focused, isn't that enough? If corruption is going to be a real problem in and of itself, won't that eventually show up in an outcome that does cost a government its place and the system corrects itself that way? Sure, but that might not be living in a democracy. That might be living in some other system. I mean, a democracy surely at its heart considers uh, that the system of government should reflect a fundamental equality between citizens Um, should respect a system of justice as fairness uh, that uh, accords, uh, does not accord favour to particular groups simply on the basis that they have access to power or that they have sufficient wealth to influence uh, public discourse and sway elections. But that's impossible to realise, right? Because in in any any (laughs) body politic, there are going to be, there's a differential distribution of power. There are going to be some people who are more powerful and influential than others. Sure, sure. But, I mean, this is, I think, Machiavelli's lesson and what makes Machiavelli uh, such a relevant uh, writer for us uh, in the 21st century is that he argues that corruption is a part of the fabric of politics. You can never expunge corruption, but you always have to struggle against it. And Machiavelli was no Democrat necessarily by modern standards. Uh, but that, that concern um, that corruption should be something that a populace should be concerned about because it is always there, but must be struggled against and must be struggled against in a very public way. Um, Machiavelli, a writer for our times and precisely for this uh, particular dispute. Now, I think that's a very interesting distinction because surely, Waleed, you're not suggesting that even if the public has come to accept that there are a certain level of corruption that's part of the price of having representative politics or part of the price of living in a democracy, surely you're not saying that we should then 
not hear anything more about corruption in form of public disclosures or public public interest reporting or through transparency reports through independent bodies. I mean, if if we're to accept that this is kind of part of the part of the 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 fabric, if you like, of political life, but we're also to take Bruce's point that we need to keep a degree of public awareness of the problem of corruption, then are you saying that we should hear less reporting about it? Are no. you saying so, that so public- I'm in a tricky situation here because I feel like I am far more concerned about that stuff than the electorate as a whole, right? I'm also thinking that it's possible that they're just right about this and I'm wrong about this. And but none of that equates to let's not hear about corruption. The bigger argument for anything that would approximate let's hear about less about corruption is that when we keep hearing about it, it just becomes background noise and we don't care about it, right? Mm, mm. That's probably a more persuasive argument for that. But in Which any is event, probably pretty close to where we are now, as a matter of fact. We, we, yes. like the, we like the appearance of the scandal. We like the frisson. But it's not going to do anything to cause us to change our opinion substantively. No, and when asked whether or not we want a federal ICAC, we'll say yes, but we're not really going to storm the barricades over it and we're not going to vote for it, right? Um, It's not going to cost anyone government. It's not going to get anyone government. Ergo, it probably won't happen. But for all that, all what I think, the idea I think I'm playing with here is that suppose I'm totally wrong about this and suppose that the problem is that we're trying to lump way too much into this corruption bucket, right? Because it, it, let's take the idea of lobbying and favours being done for lobby, for lobby groups and donors and so on. Well, as an American, Scott, you would know that one of the great problems that you have with powerful lobby groups is that lobbying is speech, mm. right? So you, you can't, it, there's not a very effective way to ban lobbying or even to limit it. It's a form of speech and it might be funded speech um, but even political donations in American jurisprudence have been held to be speech, yeah. political speech, and therefore very difficult to regulate without violating the First Amendment. Now, we don't have a First Amendment, but the minute you have a, a, a democratic culture built on the notion of speech and exchange, you're going to get concentrations of power within that landscape of speech, aren't you? There are going to be some people who are much better at mobilising, um, much better at speaking in a persuasive way, much better at funding themselves or getting funding so that they can get their message out and so on. And so it becomes conceptually difficult to figure out where that stops being just good lobbying and something that becomes something that distorts democracy or even deserves to have the C word attached to it. And and they become so impossible to differentiate. I guess this is the point I'm trying to make, Bruce, that it becomes so undifferentiable that it gets difficult to expect an electorate to do anything about it until you get that sort of crowning example where people just get smacked down, politicians get smacked down because they've either failed to deliver outcomes in the contemporary parlance or they've done something that's just so obviously egregious that they can't survive in the form of, say, a New South Wales Labor. Sure. And I accept a lot of what you've just laid out there, that um, it is inherently difficult to separate lobbying, for example, from the normal practice of democratic government, uh, that it is very hard to identify where lobbying might become something that we could describe as being corrupt or corrupting. Um, 
But that in itself is, I think, part of the problem, that if we value democracy, we have to care about where those lines might be drawn and how they might be drawn and how the practices might be regulated. Um, so my simple argument is, is simply to return to valuing democracy, which requires us to take corruption very seriously and not to allow ourselves to think, well, corruption is in the end too tricky to define, too uh, entangled with the normal course of political events, too entangled with uh, the day-to-day -day functioning of government that we really cannot take a position on it. I think that is one of the great dangers that modern democracies around the world face. And until we find a way of orienting ourselves toward uh, the dangers that are inherent in corruption for any democratic society uh, or system of government, um, then we're going to face this constant problem of um, a lack of trust, um, a decline in, in uh, public trust in, in government and our elected officials. Except the trust figures are up, right? They, they are up during this crisis. Yeah. Which, which I, I don't see as simply being a blip. I mean, I think there's been something very, very important, especially after the bushfires with which the year began. I think there's been something very important about the way that state and federal governments have regained a degree of credibility. And it reveals capacity, quite... right? It does reveal capacity. I, I think that's right. But can I, can I just put something to the two of you? And, well, Ada, I, I really like the way that you kind of place the emphasis on not just the inescapability, but to some extent even the virtue of partiality. I mean, lobbying is a form of partisanship. It is a form of partiality. More attention should be given to one thing as opposed to other things. I, I mean, I think partiality is an important part of democratic politics. I think partisanship is actually an important part of democratic politics, precisely to the extent that partisanship allows us to see other moral issues or political issues through different ideological valences. It makes everything take on a slightly different kind of shade. I think that's, that's good. But when partiality and partisanship becomes a decision between two takes on reality, in other words, when partisanship becomes a choice between, if you like, two forms of knowledge, two systems of trust, two ideas about what constitutes truth and what doesn't, then I think we're in the realm of political corruption, but not because it breaches the rules of political integrity. I mean, I do think integrity, the idea that you are in office if you're an office holder in order to serve an interest beyond your own, uh, whether or not you're being watched actively. I, I think that is central to, to, to political virtue. But the other, the other thing that's central to political virtue is truthfulness, the ability to say what it is that you want to be taken as true and you want generally accepted to be taken as true in a matter that is forthright and intends to be persuasive. And I think one of the problems, and this is, I think, isn't this the great contradiction in modern democracy, precisely because of our insistence on forms of accountability and transparency, various forms of political mendacity, prevarication, ass covering, slipping out of precise descriptions. I, here I think Bill Clinton was the absolute master if you think about the different ways in which he wanted sexual relations to be defined. Mm. There's no way that you can expect – that certain politicians expect what they are saying to be taken as truthful. But it's the sacrifice of forthrightness I think 
that is also us giving ourselves over, I think, to a system that can be described as corrupt. So you're saying that that is a result of the kind of subterranean corruption we don't care about? I think it may well be part of the result of the subterranean corruption, but I think whereas we don't see public lying or a lack of public forthrightness as necessarily a form of corruption, but simply, quote unquote, politics as usual, I think that is fully as much corrupting of our political environment okay. as the, yeah. We're out of time, but I, I one final question to Bruce. Bruce, I'm not saying that we should say corruption's too tricky to define, so let's just forget all about it. What I suppose I'm asking you is, if it's true that the Australian public, to take the most immediate example, simply decides to arbitrate this on pragmatic grounds of outcome, is that not a justifiable, perhaps even very effective way of policing whatever level of corruption we are prepared to tolerate? It might be an effective way of sustaining a particular form of government, but it wouldn't be an effective way of policing anything, I don't think. Mm. Why is that? Because it's it, it would not be policing. It would be simply accepting that corruption is the price you pay for negative gearing or the fact that you're in a job or the system seems to be ticking along, uh, the benefits that accrue to the system as it is. Um, I think that um, corruption has to be taken um, far more seriously than that. It is a phenomenon that has to be policed and it has to be policed in a very public way. But doesn't it get taken seriously indirectly in the sense that if it's policed in this way, or I understand you dispute that term, but you know what I mean, then corruption can only reach a certain level before it gets punished and before there is accountability. Uh, it's very hard to answer that question in the abstract. Um, I think part of the dangers of corruption, and again, this is revealed by, you know, historical analysis, is that corruption will always uh, wax and fester in darkened corners. And if you have a system of government where there is effectively no or very little accountability for misdeeds, misgovernment or acts of corruption, then how can you be sure that corruption isn't actually spreading far further and far wider than you assume it is. Mm. Mm. Yep. Wow. Thanks, Bruce. It, Thank the, you. you had the shoes of the last guest of the year to fill and you filled them in. <laughs> <laughs> so well, well, thank you for the opportunity. It was great fun. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.